0: I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schram's Library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Glad to have you with us this evening. I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Ashbrook Center is an educational organization, a center founded in 1983. And our mission is to educate our fellow Americans in the history and founding principles of our country. And we try to do that through conversation, Because we really believe at Ashbrook that education is not about indoctrination, definitely, and not even about information, but about discovering the truth for yourself. We try to follow Aristotle's old dictum that all human beings by nature desire to know. And then we add, but they don't want to be told. They want to discover it for themselves. So we do that. We found the best way to do that is through conversation. So we're going to be having a conversation this evening about a an extraordinarily important topic that's in the news today, every day that you look, the question of censorship, ban books, ban thoughts, the meaning of cancel culture and what we can do about it today. And for that conversation, joined by a very special guest, someone I feel like I've known for a long time, but have never actually met until now, uh, Professor Flagg Taylor. He is uh, teaches political science at Skidmore College in New York. He has been a visiting fellow at the James Madison program at Princeton University. He's been on the Academic Council of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. His, he was educated with his bachelor's degree at Kenyon College here in the great state of Ohio, uh, his Ph.D. from Fordham University, where he studied with illustrious figures, uh, including Mary Nichols. He is an author of many articles and books, a terrific book on executive power and articles on totalitarianism and dissent. And very interestingly for our topic tonight, he's the editor of a book called The Long Night of the Watchman, essays by Vaclav Benda, 1977 to 1989, who was a very prominent Czech Catholic anti-communist dissident, um, important figure in Czech and Eastern European and frankly in Cold War history. So we're delighted to have him join us. He's a real expert. I want you to join the conversation, of course, this evening with us, too. Send your questions through the Q&A function. I always say we try to get to as many as we possibly can. Sometimes we can't get to every single one, but we'll certainly try. We have a real expert with us tonight on censorship, on cancel culture, and the importance of free thinking, free, free speech, free press, and um, the real meaning of education. And I have to say one last thing. Flag also happens to be the worst half of Na- uh, of Natalie Taylor, <laughs> who is an old friend of this, uh, the American idea. Many of you listeners know Natalie's terrific work in political science as well. Uh, Flag Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, thanks,
1: Jeff. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here and happy to get a chance to uh work with uh, the ashbrook center after watching natalie and being jealous of her association with you guys for for so long so it's a real it's a real pleasure for me to to join you to talk about these uh this great
0: issue tonight um censorship the broad term it gets thrown around a lot today we hear about governments exercising in censorship we hear about social media companies being accused of censorship we have the twitter files being released online for example Take take a step back for us and our listeners. What do we mean? What do people mean? What do you think we should mean when we use the word censorship?
1: Well, that's that's a pretty that's the problem, right? Is that it's it's a pretty large concept, and and um, obviously the the nature of censorship varies depending on who's doing the censoring and what they're intending to to censor. I would say, and so um, you know, the phenomenon of of censorship starts in the modern sense in the 17th century uh, in places like England and France where you had um, the either the the monarchy, um, you know requiring Publishers to license people people's works before that they would be published, right and this is what John Milton wrote about in a in a famous essay called the Aeropagitica. he argued against pretty vociferously I think it's 1644 or something like that um removing the necessity for getting this pre-publication approval for censorship he's one of the first um thinkers to to kind of write a coherent argument you know demanding that 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 idea be be removed um so censorship can take place before publication sometimes it can take place after publication right the censoring can be done by punishing people um for their words you know if they if they libeled the the good name of of George Washington or something, right, then the person who published that opinion could be punished. Um, But censorship can also take place, I would say, through um, unofficial means, right, through public opinion, right, the idea that um, political majorities, right, could um, punish people for dissenting from the opinions of whatever whatever that uh, political coalition is guided by. And so Tocqueville talks about this in *Democracy in America*. That um, even though he he admires the press freedom, the number of newspapers, the kind of the vibrant freedom of the press that exists, he really doesn't think much of of uh, independence of of mind in America. He doesn't think there's actually much much of it, and that's due to this informal pressure of majority opinion, kind of reining people's uh, reining in people's thoughts. You don't need official censorship. Um, to narrow thought you can you can do it by these unofficial unofficial means as well um and so yeah censorship can take a lot of different forms uh and and shapes and um i guess you know it would be it would be helpful um if more people were uh, i guess a little bit more precise and careful in how they were using the word that
0: might clarify you know the public conversation around these issues today right We, we we sometimes think of the difference between as a parent for example we, you know, of course, we censor what our kids watch or what, they, what right. they consume, right? So, but we think of that as proper parental supervision. To us modern folks today, the word censorship, even though, of course, we engage in censorship of our, our children and, and should, we think of censorship, though, as having a negative connotation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. Let's go back to the first. I was really interested in your your comment. There's two kinds of censorship, one engaged in by governments, one engaged in without governments. Let's talk about the first one, government censorship. And by that, I mean a kind of oppressive control and punishment of freedom to speak, freedom to publish. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of work on the so- dissidents in, in the communist world. Talk to us about the regimes of censorship that existed in the communist world.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, um, for, for the, for the communists, and I guess I'll sort of shift around between different examples, but, um, we can sort of start with the Soviet union. Um, you know, someone like Stalin took, took literature, uh, t- took creative writers very seriously. And in the thirties, um, he and his uh you know he and the communist party established a writer's union and you know he he thought he could use writers and literature uh to shape people's you know disposition towards loving this this communist project and so literature was an important instrument in in shaping people's souls and changing their dispositions um towards the the communist regime now that also meant you couldn't, um, you know, anyone who wanted to write a novel wasn't allowed to publish whatever they wanted. Um, The novels had to be consistent with um, the message of promoting the idea that the proletariats were always the good guys and the bourgeois people were always the evil people, right? I mean, so this meant um, that, that if you were to publish a novel, it really had to be guided by the precepts Of the of the communist revolution, and so any um, any anyone who ran afoul of the uh, of the precepts of, of of the social and political precepts of communism would not have been allowed to publish their work. That also meant, right, that if you possessed literature that had not been approved of by the party, right, you could be punished. For uh, harboring um, literature that endangered, you know, the communist project. So, for example, in in um, in the former Czechoslovakia, um, one could not read the the work of J. R. Tolkien. Um, but but really, you mentioned the yeah, author of the Lord of the Rings, author of the Lord of the Rings, and so yeah, you mentioned Václav Vladislav Benda. Um, he had, he had um, you know large Catholic cat, Catholic family loved Tolkien. Um, you know, he was able to get a self-published copy of *The Lord of the Rings* in, in order to read it to his children, and so the interesting phenomenon started to develop in these countries where you had what was called the—this is a um, a Russian word, *samizdat*, which just means self-published. And so you had the official publishing houses which published the predictable uh, fiction in the socialist realist style. But then people are usually able to get their hands on Samizdat. These underground publishers started to crop up. And in some cases, these underground publishers published very beautiful, sophisticated works. And they would publish things like Tolkien or George Orwell or the Polish author uh, Czesław Miłosz, his poetry. Um, you know, lots of lots of things. Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, famous Cold War novel that was translated into Czech and circulated underground. So there is a quite... Um, because of the stifling uh, official publication atmosphere, um, they're 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 pretty quickly developed a quite vibrant underground press where these different publishers would would um, have an effect. Subscribers, right? So anytime a new book would come out with a publisher, you know they w- they would be charged, but they would get um,
0: they you know they would get a copy of these of these books. So I would imagine people like that uh, ran serious risk of being um informed on being arrested by the secret police um put in prison or worse yeah
1: in the you know in the 50s uh in Czechoslovakia for example right the the, the risks were were greater that was during the kind of hyper oppressive stalinist phase it mellowed a bit in the 1970s so um even though it was illegal to possess some of these books um right as long as you kept them to yourselves and didn't didn't really circulate them you are probably, um, you know, pretty, pretty, I, w- I wouldn't say safe, but um, as long as you weren't circulating them and spreading them, right, you you probably could um, stay out of trouble, but, uh, but not, you know, not always so easy. And, you know, one never knew what, what would, um, you know, how you could run afoul of the official, uh, the official regime strictures against possessing this literature. I mean, I should also say too, that it was, it was not only the possession of literature like tolkien or orwell these things but um you know that once this dissident movement got going in in czechoslovakia and after 1977 they were circulating official documents um and, and you know and those really to to try to in an attempt to widen the the movement against the regime, they wanted as many people to see these documents as possible. And so you were actually expected to to help circulate this information. And so in that case, that would have been quite quite dangerous.
0: So how did authors, people or others who, poets and others who wanted to get their work out and they didn't buy this official socialist line, but they were maybe too worried about publishing, self-publishing in this underground network, how did some of them, I'm thinking, for example, the very famous Czech writer and then eventually president, Vaclav Havel, how does someone, how do those people navigate the regime of censorship? Do they always publish uh, illegally or do they try and somehow maneuver themselves around the communist censors?
1: So there's, yeah, there. so Havel would be a good example of, of one path. And so um and Havel's case is interesting, right? Because there and there is this, I should say, in um in the case of Czechoslovakia, there's this period, I would say, from 1965 to 1968, of a kind of brief opening when the regime mellowed a significant amount. This is in the lead up to what's called the Prague Spring. And so there's this kind of reform movement that develops within the within the Communist Party. Um, and one of the first things that happens during this period is is the is the opening of these censorship laws. And so, for example, in 1965, some of Havel's plays are allowed to be performed in Prague, right? So he becomes a pretty well-known figure. You know, his plays then are are um are then start to be performed in places like London and and Berlin and, and Vienna. So he becomes quite famous. But once the Prague Spring ends and the Soviets come in and crack down, there's this period of normalization where where the censorship regime is restored and it's very harsh again. And at that point, Havel chooses um, not to even attempt uh, to to try to publish through any official organs. And he starts uh, he himself started a, a publishing house called the um, I think it's called the Padlock. Oh, no, it's called um uh, Expeditsa or something in 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 Czech. And so he himself was a publisher and he published some of his own plays, some of his own works. Um, he also would have private viewings of his plays. So he would perform, you know, he had friends in the theater, he had actor friends. And so he would go up to his, uh, you know, to his little mountain cottage, invite a bunch of people and put on, you know, put on plays. And that's, and you know they they did all of this stuff. You could say in in private, right? And and just invited people who they knew they could trust and who wanted to come. And so Havel re- really takes the route of of the underground, the Sami's dot publishing. And there were, I would say, three or four publishers, um, quite prominent underground publishers during the seventies, who were producing really interesting interesting literature. The other example that I was going to give you that's quite different is the example of an author called Vasily Grossman. Who's a Who's a Soviet writer? He was a member of the of the Soviet Writers Union, and he was a reporter for the Red Army. He became quite famous during World War II because he wrote these dispatches for the the Red Star, the Red Army's newspaper. Um, he was one of the first people to write about um, Treblinka, right? Because the Soviets were the first people to come across um, uh, a Holocaust uh, camp, right? Uh, one of these concentration camps. So he became uh, a prominent writer during World War II, he starts to write fiction after um after the war and um and 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 he writes he writes um a long long novels about um families that went through the war um and his and so one of the novels gets published um I forget it's I, I forget the 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 name that was published under um during his time but but now the 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 novel is available it's called stalingrad that's the first half of it it's like a 900 page novel but the second novel that he wrote that's um kind of the sequel to that is called life and fate and it's one of the most beautiful books of the 20th century that never gets published during his lifetime um because it you know it it makes comparisons between the nazis and the and the communists um suggesting there's a lot more similarities <laughs> than uh wow. right than one would like why to that see that wasn't
0: published yeah that was
1: not that was not published and so he's a really interesting example of a writer who sort of starts out very much as part of the the official you know official respected world of soviet writers but while he's in that world starts to write and starts to kind of poke and prod and see like how much he can, he can get away with. Right. And so he ends up, um, not being able to publish that, um, that second, um, that second half of that massive work during his lifetime. I think it's only published in Russian in, you know, 1987
0: or something, but it's a beautiful book called life, life and fate, life, life and fate. Interesting. So, Uh, I'm thinking of another famous, if you think about censorship and authors in under communism, to me, probably the most famous person that I know and that some of our listeners will clearly have heard of is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us about Solzhenitsyn and his struggle against Soviet censorship. So Solzhenitsyn um, is an interesting case. He's
1: um, a little bit, I think he's a little bit um, younger than Grossman And I think they even might have they they might have um, met at some point in the 30s. I'm not sure about that. But um, so Solzhenitsyn is is arrested and sent to and sent to the gulag um, because he he said something nasty about Stalin in a letter during World War II. And so he spends eight years in in a labor camp and actually a couple labor camps. I think he's let out in 1953 and he starts writing and then. I mentioned the period in, in uh, Czechoslovakia where there's this mellowing. Well, after Stalin died and Khrushchev comes to power, right? They have this um, – they, they have a, a period in the Soviet Union, a, a similar period of mellowing where they're sort of accusing uh, all, all the excesses that happened under Stalin or Stalin's fault. And so things start to loosen a little bit. And so Solzhenitsyn's uh, first novel, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, is published officially. It's published in a in a magazine serially, I think, in the Soviet Union, um, and so it's you know that was allowed to be published. Um, now they re- they immediately regretted that I think because they realized that it was it was affecting people's thinking right about the about the Soviet project, and so um, you know shortly after that it, I think it was made clear to him that he wasn't going to be able to publish anymore. Uh, at least in these official magazines, but he kept writing and he starts he starts working on gulag Archipelago. um, but he writes, he writes what 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 most people call um the the writers who experience these conditions. they write for the drawer. In other words, they write and they just put it away. and um and eventually, I mean, long story short, eventually that manuscript gets um, discovered by um the KGB. And after it's discovered by the KGB, he immediately orders its publication in the West. He had he had stored different copies around because he wanted to make sure that um that his version of it was published and the KGB didn't didn't publish it and you know mangle it and purposefully you know change things. Um and after that um is is published, uh he he is uh let, let's say asked to leave the, the Soviet Union. <laughs> so 1974, <laughs> they say Alexander, you know, so, so long, it's been, it's been nice, but you're no longer welcome here, goes to Switzerland, and then eventually ends up actually pretty
0: close to to where I am. Uh, he, he ends up in Vermont. Mm. So, and a, a writer of that prominence, because some of our listeners might be thinking, how, why don't the Soviets just execute him? Have him vanish in the gulag? Is it because he, Solzhenitsyn by that time is so prominent that the oppression of the regime, it just caused too much public outcry? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right, that he had already become so famous at that point that he would have gotten himself into into a lot of the, the regime would have gotten itself into a lot of trouble. Um same same thing with Havel. I mean, Havel goes to prison for four years from 1979 to to 1983. And lots of people wonder why why would they just execute him or keep him in prison for even longer? But same reason. You know, he's he's he had become uh, such an internationally known. Uh, writer at that point that it becomes it becomes quite dangerous for them to harm him, t-
0: you know, too too much. So those are examples, obviously, of Soviet communism uh, and communism more broadly. And that, of course, that falls in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, but it's still true today, right, that we have there are regimes around the world. I'm thinking of North Korea, among others. Uh, and obviously, you're associated with the victims of communism Memorial Foundation. Um, is that kind of communist totalitarian suppression continuing sure
1: yeah places like china um i mean the the places like cuba uh there there are lots of writers who i assumed whose work you would see were it were it not for the existence of of these regimes um and then i mean the interesting uh thing that that's happened in um you know in, in in our times too is a lot you could you could say you know in the i i should have said this when we were talking about um you know the 70s and 80s and the sami's dot publications these things are circulated and they're written on typewriters and and different copies are made by you put you know 13 or 14 pages of these paper thin onion skin paper and so when you type you can make you know 14 copies at a time but if you know if you get the 14th you know the type is pretty. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to read if you get a if you get one of those copies. Um, and so the thought right would have been, well, if only these dissidents had had the technology that we have today, right? They probably could have circulated, um, you know, their literature much more effectively. At least that that was the thinking um, by a lot of people. But I think um, at least at least as where we are now, it turns out that technology has redounded to the power of the state much more than to the power of the the resistors or the dissidents right it's enabled the the Chinese Communist Party to police its citizens right to a level that um you know would have made uh Stalin quite jealous would it would have made the the Czech Communists quite quite jealous the level of monitoring they were they were um, able to, the Chinese are able to achieve now and so um I, I think it it turns out to, to technology has not helped the cause of, of freedom of speech. Uh, if anything, it's 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 tended to uh, redound to the benefit of the oppressors.
0: So, would you characterize a place like, of course, North Korea really is a Stalinist regime, uh, yeah. and it, in, it, like at the height of Stalin's worst terrors, that's what the people of North Korea suffer under even today. Yeah. But if you take the example of China, where would you what would you th- where would you rate China's censorship regime? Is it? really stalin-esque or is it more mellow like it was in czechoslovakia in certain years is it how how if you know if you can tell us a little bit more because i know a lot of our listeners will be interested sort of what how free or unfree is publishing and speaking in china today um
1: i think political and social speech is pretty unfree um and it's done um I t- actually talked to a guy who's an expert on on China called Perry Link. He's writing a biography of a of the uh, I think it, no, Nobel Prize winner from 2011. I want to say Liu Xiaobo is his name. He he passed away a few years back, but he's he's coming out with a biography of of Liu Xiaobo and uh, and Perry's um, Perry's a uh, metaphor that he uses um, is that the state is like an the the anaconda in the chandelier. Sort of lurking above you, you know it's menacing. You know it's big. You know it can choke you, but it's not clear when it's going to strike. Uh, and so the the Chinese are very good at kind of leaving it leaving it be an open question: what exactly is permitted and what's not permitted. But but the result of that means that people start to self censor. Right in a in, in you know in a few in a few powerful cases they'll you know they'll send someone to prison like if, if you're expressly political right you're not going to get away with anything, um and so they they use this constant surveillance they use the social credit system right where your neighbors spy on you and you know you can advance and you can get a better apartment right to the extent that you help the state monitor your monitor your fellow citizens right so there are these inducements to to conform and to inform on others and so it's a kind of um i would say it's it's in a sense gentle but in a way it's even more pervasive and more constricting than uh than sort of express you know stalinism in a way
0: right um that's that's the kind of government censorship that you were talking about. And amazingly, in our day and age, as you say, it still exists. And as you put it, I think it's a really important point. We tend to think technology just liberates the flow of information and publishing. But as you say, it can be used by governments like the Chinese Communist government to actually be more effective in restricting. Um, that's government censorship. The other kind of censorship you talked about, which I was really interested to hear you say, is not by government. But by society or by social opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I think the phrase we have for that today is cancel culture. Talk a little bit about if, if the law steps back and allows authors to publish their works and to put forth their political ideas and to be dissidents, um, can society step in and still smother the expression and communication of those ideas? Yeah, I
1: think that's, I mean, I think you've just made the the Tocqueville case, right? Tocqueville says there's no, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but it's something like, you know, there's no country where there's less independence of mind than America.
0: And he says it's because of the and power. as an American, I'm, I'm offended by hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> what is, what is he possibly, what could he possibly mean? He, he says that it's the
1: power of majority opinion that in america of course you don't uh, necessarily take your opinions as they are um, handed down from on high by a monarch or even a, a democratic government but you take your opinions ready-made by whatever the pre- prevalent opinion is around you and so i use uh i'll, I'll use natalie's um uh, I'll use my mother-in-law as an example. She'll she'll say um often when she's you know wants to tell us what to do. She'll she'll say, "You know what they say." It's just the they. It's like who does she mean? She just means the majority. It's just what what is said. And Tocqueville's point is is that it's a weird thing to bow down before this abstraction. Right? It's a peculiar American thing to just go with with whatever the pervasive flow is. And Tocqueville's argument is that that majority opinion seems democratic. It seems like a better deal than having to um having to be bossed around by a particular person. Right? So so in a way it's it's like, well, no one's better than me, so I'm not going to listen to anyone. You get this inflated sense of your own independence. But then, in the in the next breath, you sort of just do what the majority what the majority says. Um, the other example that I'll give you that Pete, my my uh, former friend and and kind of teacher mentor Peter Lawler uh, used was was the example is when 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 you see in a newspaper and people say studies show. Well, what study? Who did the study? Right? No one ever cares. It's just some study, and that's that's a good example of of majority opinion. And so, and I guess the one thing I would add is that it's a kind of, um, I think Tocqueville would say it's a kind of presentism that in, in, in modern democracy, um, we, we tend to live in the present and tend to have trouble thinking outside of the confines of our own time and place because we take seriously the idea that broad social forces have kind of shaped and determined where we are. And that means that there's this kind of surrender just to whatever whatever the prevailing op- opinion is, um, and so that's Tocqueville's argument. I'm not. I guess I'm. I'll have to think a little bit more
0: about how that relates to the the phenomenon you mentioned of cancel culture. Well, let me let me follow up on that. First of all, I want our listeners our listeners will be glad to know that my wife's mother-in-law never tries to tell us what to do. Oh, so, that's good. Um, <laughs> I find that unlikely. <laughs> But, um, let me ask you this then. Okay. But so in some ways, what you're saying is, and this is a really interesting point that the, be- because of the power of majority thinking and opinion, um, we might be taking our opinions from outside ourselves where we think we have our own opinion, as you put it. And it's really society giving us this opinion. And we move with the fashions of society because people don't always think this through. Um, but then there is this thing today that we see cancel culture. So, for example, there's professors who come on campuses. A judge just came on campus at a very famous law school out on the West Coast just two days ago and was heckled and shouted down by yeah. law students. before the, I think before the judge even got started and some administrators actually joined in on, in this. Um, cancel culture phenomenon. Is, 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 is this something... Is this kind of uh, oppression? Is this kind of censorship? Is it um, what's new about it? What's different about it than the kind of social pressure that Tocqueville talked about? Um, I'm not sure that it's all that different.
1: Um, I mean, Tocqueville gives a couple of examples in the book. He he gives one example of um, free free blacks in Pennsylvania. He's I think the, it's in a footnote, and he's talking to some Quakers, and he he into this conversation and, and the, it, you know, the basically the upshot is free blacks can actually vote in Pennsylvania. Why don't they? And, you know, the majority opinion doesn't let them, right. There's this prejudice that exists, even, even though there's formal equality, the prejudice pr- prevents them. Um, and so I'm not sure that it's, that it's that different. I, I, w- I would say that the, the, the cancel culture n- now has become, um, you you just see different pockets of it and and different levels of vociferousness, right? Depending on the particular environment, I guess I would say. And you see the phenomenon. I mean, maybe Tocqueville would be surprised at how pervasive it is, in the in the sense that you see it in, um, you know, in newsrooms, right? You hear about um, you know people who work for the New York Times getting fired for running afoul of different opinions about about gender or race you you brought up the example of of law schools um you know speakers getting getting shouted down um you know like the example of people in private corporations right who say the say the wrong thing and so I guess you could make the case that in all of these cases it takes on a slightly different, form in, in the sense of some of these people don't get fired, but their lives are kind of made miserable enough where they where they want to leave. Um, but in some cases they do get they do get fired. Um, and And so uh, I would say the the problem of freedom of speech has become more acute precisely because of the, the this these these problems seem to be happening in so many disparate areas of of American life. You can't, you know, you can't just say, oh, it's a problem in X, um, you know, kind kind of uh,
0: corporation. Right, right. It does seem to be happening in lots of places around the country. Um, Why do you think there is this um, movement in toward cancel culture in these places? You you would think that um, there was a struggle in the 1950s and 60s, not just for civil rights, but for freedom of speech and the Supreme Court. As you know, and our listeners probably know, kind of embraced broader doctrines of freedom of speech, permitting people to say things, for example, not being able to be um, you know, uh, put in jail because you espoused communist ideas, even though they're extremely unpopular. And it seemed like for a while that freedom of speech was kind of becoming the, the, the social norm. And the Supreme Court uh, embraced lots of doctrines that said it needs to be robust, wide open, and uninhibited, I think is their phrase. So it's striking to me that as free speech and free press and publishing seems to have one legally, socially, though, not so true. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that freedom of speech, if I'm right, has not really triumphed in this way? Um. I mean, I guess one 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 answer is just
1: simply that the the Tocqueville phenomenon of the power of majority opinion and the power of these majorities to want to discipline and create a kind of conformity, right? People don't um freedom freedom is hard and disagreement is hard. And the the reality of having to navigate um a variety of of opinions right on fraught topics right living in that world is just difficult right because that would mean that um you know you're not really sure what you're supposed to think and so maybe part of the solution socially is just to create these these bubbles um so that you create the environment where you everyone kind of knows how they're supposed to think and what to do and it's gonna, you know, because the, I guess I would say the dis, the dispersal of opinion, is is uncomfortable, right? Um, the other thing I would say, um, and this this I haven't thought through, but I've been I've been thinking about this because I'm actually I've been asked to contribute to a panel at Skidmore on freedom of speech, but um, I would say more speech. Like you were saying, right? We've we've sort of opened things up, and and we have you know social media. There's all these different means through which to express yourself. I would also say, right now we equate uh, when we talk about freedom of speech. Sometimes we use the 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 phrase freedom of expression. So you you know speech can be in, include things that really you're you're not speaking, right? The famous refusing to salute the flag, that's speech. So not doing something that's not speaking is now speech. I guess one of one of my um, suggestions would be that we don't really take speech that seriously anymore, right? That we don't, we talk about more and less and we emphasize that we want more and we want a variety and we want people to say what they think, but we don't really um, emphasize to people that, with speaking comes responsibility and you should think before you speak and you should speak coherently and you should think about what audience you have in mind right i mean thinking about the just the the twitter phenomenon you know how many people write a tweet and think who am i who am i trying to convince with this tweet right what are the different audiences right no one thinks that they just fire the thing off and and uh you know the hell with it see what see what happens and so, part I guess part of my suspicion is that this this um, effort to kind of limit and react against um, lots of speech is is because we don't really take speech that seriously, and the result is that people really don't know how to navigate this this kind of open world, and so we try to create these little zones, right, where everyone knows how to, they should think and behave, and that that's not healthy either. I mean, I hope maybe that sounds like I'm defending the the solution, but I'm rather just trying to give an account of why people are reacting this
0: way. No, that's interesting because you were telling me before we got on, you you teach a course called uh, "Free and Civil Speech," and that's interesting. Free and civil speech. Yeah. Um. What do What do you find today with your students who are always on social media? Of various kinds, is TikTok or it's Instagram or it's Twitter? Yeah. I guess students are on Facebook. Uh they they think that's for older people. That's for old people, yeah. <laughs> but your students are out on on social media all the time. Um what's their view of themselves as speaking and publishing in this social media? Do they do they, as you said, do they think of it just as their opportunity to just express whatever they want or do they find themselves censoring themselves or do they try and be like you suggest and be articulate their ideas, communicate them in a responsible way. What's their kind of engagement with social media?
1: I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have a good answer to that just in terms of how they use and think about social media. I mean, I will say though, that I do know that students at Skidmore have been um, kind of outed and punished on social media you know, if they if they run afoul of of um, you know some incorrect some some opinion that is that is not uh, approved of, and so social media has been a means to to kind of discipline people who've run afoul of the majority opinion here, um, and that scares kids, and it's and it's resulted in in um, in some sense, I, I think a a kind of wariness of just to say what you think. In in conversation, right, with people you don't know, I think it's made it harder to teach, um, you know, in the classroom, people don't want to say the wrong thing in the classroom. And so this is a constant battle is just getting, um, I, I try to emphasize to my students that having a half formed thought is okay, right? Most of us go through our lives having half, half-formed thoughts all the time. I've been accused and, of having many of them. Yeah, and then articulating them as best you can, and that's that's how you learn. But their fear of saying the wrong thing has really made them reluctant uh, to, to articulate anything that they're not supremely confident, right, will kind of remain within the confines of acceptable opinion. And so, I, I mean, teaching in this environment has been... Has been really hard the past couple of years. All right, how do we push back on
0: that? How do we promote what you call free and civil speech?
1: I, I, I think I mean someone would pay me a lot of money if I give us give some thought, even
0: if they're only half formed. I'm, <laughs> uh,
1: I'm, I've, I've, you know, I mean, I think more people need to to teach courses related to to kind of the history of free speech and to understand the different arguments for and against and you know take seriously the ideas that um kind of ground our modern regime of freedom of speech um I mean I'm I'm struck by the the extent to which the the early American founders were absolutely convinced there there's a connection between free speech and political liberty you know you could not have one Without the other, so really to engage or engage those arguments to understand why they made that connection, why freedom of the press was so important. Um, you know, understand the meaning of freedom of conscience. Right. I mean, I, I think our students don't don't quite understand the uh, the power and depth of those ideas, um, and the, the 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 ways in which they are in a, in a way the great inheritors of of, of um, of these founding principles that, that benefit them. And so I guess one way would be just to try to try to get more and more people to appreciate the preciousness of, of what we have, um, you know, and, and how we don't, we, we, we ought not to be, want to willingly give it away, right. As, as a result of these weird social pressures that, that we feel, um, you know, but that that's tough because you got to make students, um, more courageous, more willing to say what they think, more more willing to to lay a, a half-formed thought uh, on the table, and so I, I do think we we've got to what we've got to have better colleges and universities that emphasize the importance of of conversation to to learning. Like you were saying at the be- very beginning of um, of your opening with with Ashbrook, right? I mean, conversation is at the core of of learning, and if students are just afraid all the time to say what they think this is not this is not the path to to discovery who
0: who do you um who do you want your students to read to help them understand that and help them be the kind of people who are have free and civil speech whether they're speaking it whether they're publishing it as authors who's a good person i'm thinking of that there are teachers listening to this or there are parents or grandparents and they say okay i want my kids to read some work that will really help them get this deep understanding and and give them some confidence is there a particular author or book that you recommend um i mean i we, we've just done excerpts right of of some of the
1: I guess I would say sort of the usual, the usual suspects on, on the the question, the questions surrounding free speech. And so we've read, you know, Jefferson and, and Hamilton, of course, John Stuart Mill is very important. His, uh, se- the second chapter of, of on Liberty is one of the more famous articulations, the case for, for freedom of speech. So that's, that's certainly a great, um, a great work. Um, but, you know, but also read, understand, understand the critics, understand why people made the case uh, for censorship. Um, one of my favorite works of of political philosophy, I just actually did a podcast with my old teacher from Kenyon College. Her name's Pam Jensen. She's written a lot about uh, Rousseau and, and Ralph Ellison and other thinkers. Um, but I had a conversation with her about Rousseau's letter to D'Alembert, Bear, uh, which is a wonderful work where Rousseau... Um, is reacting to D'Alembert's suggestion that what geneva really needs is a theater and rousseau, <laughs> rousseau kind of loses his mind and says this is a bad idea for a free republican people right you we do not want to turn uh geneva into uh corrupt you know corrupt paris and so you know the idea that you 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 really have to think through the extent to which de- democracy um Needs responsible citizens, and responsible citizenship might have to think twice about certain amusements and entertainments, and how those entertainments fit fit or don't fit with the cultivation of of virtue. Um, And so, I think you have to take seriously the the counter arguments on on the other side
0: as well. Boy, that's so appropriate when you think of the the way social media today is used and misused for information rather than the responsible communication and discussion and conversation that you're talking about
1: yeah if you have i mean that that strikes me as really as really right that if you have these ways of amusing yourself that incentivize careless expression right of course you're going to get a public sphere that's kind of degraded and so right the duties of the duties of speech need to be emphasized emphasized as well i think
0: all right. So there, I'm sure some of our listeners would be interested in an expert like you who spent a, a career studying these matters. What are some recommendations you have for people who are interested in censorship, maybe um, contemporary issues of censorship or maybe historical like uh, under the communist regimes? What are some of your favorite books or movies that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: Um, the movies are easy. So, Uh, there's a wonderful movie called the lives of others um 2008 i think um it's a movie about east germany and about a playwright um in east east germany and his battles with the Stasi. it won the academy award for best foreign film that year it might be 2007 um i might not have that the year right but that's a that's i think probably my, my one of the best best movies of the 2000s frankly it's it's a german movie subtitles but it's It's beautiful. Um, And it's called The Lives of Others. The Lives of Others. Um, Same director, his his name is Florian von Henkel um, Donnersmark. He he has a movie called Never Look Away. That's a treatment of the fate of an artist. Um, And he takes the artist and shows you his life under the Nazi regime, under the communist regime in East Germany. And then the guy escapes and goes to Dusseldorf. He goes to West Germany um and so you see him in 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 the free regime um that's his his second kind of big big movie it didn't do as well as the lives of others it's three hours long so it's a bigger ask but it's an absolutely gorgeous um gorgeous movie really really moving and again it takes up the this question of art art and politics and the relationship between um artistic expression and and politics so i highly recommend
0: that one that's called never never look away um, and how about a book? If you want to recommend a book, whether it's maybe a biography of an, of a, of an author or artist or someone who struggled against, uh, oppression or, or just a, even a nonfiction book, what, what, yeah, what
1: there's about? a, the, so the, my, one of my favorite books is by a Polish, uh, poet called the captive mind. Uh, he describes what it was like, um, you know, to live under a communist regime and, and try to retain one's artistic integrity, right in the face of this oppression um it's it's pretty short it's uh you know 185 200 pages and um it's interesting book because in the middle of it there's a series of chapters where he takes up um he does little i would say i would call them kind of mini biographies of of writers that he knew um and so there are these four portraits of these people so it's a wonderful book um, in, in a kind of nonfiction sense of describing the phenomenon of, of, uh, of artistic oppression. But then he says, well, here's what this looked like in the context of these four people. Um, and so I'd highly recommend that, that book called the captive mind. Uh, miwosh is the author's name. The la- the last name is
0: spelled M I L O S Z. Fascinating. Um you you yourself have a really interesting podcast that I, I want our listeners to know about called Enduring Interest. Tell us a little bit about this podcast, because it seems like it's connected to your interest in books that <laughs> may were suppressed or at least ignored and deserve to be better known.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this started... Um... So it's almost coming up on two years, but, um, yeah, I started it because I, I knew there are a lot, there are lots of podcasts that deal with the great books, right? I mean, books that, uh, like Plato's Republic, and then there are also lots of podcasts that deal with books that have just been published, but not much in between. So my, my basic idea was to, to kind of have a podcast about books that people know about that wish they were better known, right? We all have our kind of favorite books that we think should be known better, and so I thought this would be a great model and so what I do is is um group uh group a series of episodes around a particular theme. And so this um we're we're in the midst of a theme about American identity and culture. So we've done a recent episode on Norman Podhoretz's uh memoir called Making It. Um we all in that series we also have an episode on a on a few of Ralph Ellison, great African American writer, a couple of his essays. Uh, the previous um the previous series of episodes was built around the idea of education so we did an essay on a on a, on a work um by hannah arendt crisis and education some essays by leo strauss in the, in that series and then my initial my initial series of episodes this this would be connected to what we've been talking about today was around the uh, books that should be better known around the theme of totalitarianism and ideology and so we did a book oh, we did an episode um about a book called we by by a russian writer named zamyatin which turns out was a was important in influencing george orwell that's a perfect example of a book wonderful short novel that should be better better known but it's just i think orwell has kind of overshadowed it um so i recommend that's another interesting book about about communism that i'd recommend to to your
0: listeners too oh fascinating so so interesting and such an important point flag about the, the significance of in a free society of and a society based on self-government, that those principles apply to speech and to press, and that we should welcome that robust communication, but have uh, the responsibility that goes along with it. Uh, that's part of governing ourselves as citizens and as as human beings. So thank you for reminding us of that. What a terrific, interesting conversation this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank all of you for joining us on this uh, episode of The American Idea. Flag Taylor, thank you again. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really, really had a great time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.